they think, manuscript, this thing's going to go on forever. But you'll be thankful to know that I have an outline. So we will, we will not go way, way over time. I'm also glad that I'm preaching this manuscript in person. I had sent this manuscript to Jonathan Worthington earlier in the week, and some of the dramatic pauses that I plan on having in the sermon weren't in my manuscript. So at one point, I was going to say, the Messiah is going to bring victory to Israel like David did. Pause. But on steroids. And Jonathan thought I was saying that David was on steroids when he was delivering Israel. So I took that out. Pray with me again and we'll jump in. Father, we pray that your son would be exalted. That you would give us eyes to see his glory. And that we ourselves would be changed from one degree of glory into another. So, Father, do your omnipotent, saving work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's fitting that our children were helping us worship this morning. You'll remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, the children were praising him saying, this is the true Messiah, the King of David. And wow, do we not have a reason to worship Jesus? Colossians says, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. This verse was more animated in my heart this week when I saw the picture of the black hole. Now, when you see the picture, the first picture ever of this black hole, it looks like not a whole lot. But if you've ever studied black holes for even a few minutes, it is absolutely mind-bending. It's a region of space that basically gobbles up anything close enough to the gravitational pull. And that gravitational pull is so strong that even light itself is pulled into the hole. Albert Einstein, whose theory of general relativity made it possible to conceive of such a place, said it was just too bizarre and too out there to even be true. Interestingly, first when I read this, I didn't think this, why would you debate about this? But scientists disagree on how you would die if you fell into a black hole. (laughs) Would you be stretched into a long noodle or would you be incinerated right away? And I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's like counting how many angels can be on, on the tip of a needle. You know, who cares? But... What it really does is take two supposedly settled facts of modern physics and pits them against each other. 
So you have the theory of gravity, which I think is well established, right? We're all on the ground. And you have the theory of quantum relativity, which I'm not going to explain. You could ask Dennis after the service. (laughs) And scientists have no understanding of how those two things can be true at the same time. And they see it happening at the same time in a black hole. So you read articles, you read news stories, and this is what they say. Either someone is wrong, or we have to admit that earthlings still aren't equipped to understand the universe. There's humility. And then this text came to my mind, and it just blew all my categories for who Jesus is that we worship. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe, including black holes that we don't even understand. He holds it together by the word, the mere word of his power. Brothers and sisters, that is the authority of Jesus Christ that we worship this morning. That is the God who humbly rides on a donkey, knowing that he's going to be crucified for our sin. So this morning we're going to look at the authority of Jesus, how he uses his authority, and what it means for us. To give a little context of where Jerusalem was at politically when Jesus came In the triumphal entry, you'll remember that Jews, Israel, had gone from one oppressor to another. And in 63 BC, the Romans took over Jerusalem and the land. And there are times of tolerance, but there are also times of brutal and offensive dictatorial oppression. One person you could think of is Pontius Pilate. In 26 AD, he had a bunch of his military come into Jerusalem with pictures of the emperor on their weaponry, shoving it in their face that your God isn't the true God, the emperor is Lord here. So the Jews have an uprising, and Pilate murders the Jews. Pilate also used the money for the temple to build an aqueduct. And again, the Jews had an uprising, and he stamped them out with more murder. Not to mention Herod the king, who murdered all the male children of Bethlehem. So when we think about the Jews in Israel at this time, it's very understandable that they would want a different political order quickly. But that is not what Jesus was bringing this time. That's not what Jesus was coming to triumph of this time. Turn with me to Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. This will provide a little context for our text this morning. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. This is the prophecy that Jesus fulfills as he comes into Jerusalem And oh, does it teach us much more about our king. 
In verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. No wonder they were excited when he came. Jesus was bringing salvation to his people. And he's a humble king. And then in verse 10, it goes on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this exalted king who is promised is going to have universal dominion. And not only will he have universal dominion, but he's going to do it without weapons. Do you see that there? I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. They won't be needed. No, he will establish peace universally through his mouth, through speech. Look at that. He shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea. And what we're seeing here is that this Messiah, who the Jews were hoping in, who the Jews were hoping would come and drive out the Romans is someone a lot bigger than they ever imagined. There are hints of divinity here. A ruler who rules without a military. This is something to celebrate. There's no wonder that the children were crying out. There's no wonder that they were laying their cloaks on the road. It's no wonder that the people were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save or save now, please save. They knew that this was God's promise of a king bringing salvation to his people. Finally, God will save us from the Romans. But oh, he is so much more than that. And they didn't see that. That's why he's crucified one week later. If you read the Gospel of Mark, what Mark is helping us do is say, yes, Jesus is that Messiah who is promised, that Davidic king who is promised throughout the whole Old Testament. But he is so much more than that. His authority extends beyond what any human king can ever have. So, when you read through Mark, you see that Jesus, the Christ, the anointed King David, doesn't just have reign over his people, he has authority over demons. Remember, he cast out demons. He has authority over teaching. He has authority over the Holy Sabbath, a day instituted by God. And Jesus says he's the Lord of that. He's the Lord over sickness. Remember, he heals Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. He's the Lord over a legion of demons. He sends them into pigs. The pigs run off a cliff. And the farmers aren't really happy about it. And, remarkably, he is the God who speaks to the wind and the waves. And his authority is such that they say, okay, we'll quiet down. Only God, only Yahweh in the Old Testament would do that. 
There is someone greater than a Davidic king here. Yes, there is a Davidic king, but there is someone so much greater. Jesus has the authority not only over the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of the world as creator, redeemer, and judge. But the people did not see it. Their hearts were blind. They could not see the glory of God in Christ. Therefore, Jesus, when he comes, uses his authority in a way the people were not expecting nor wanting. Yes, their king came to them, but what he did, they were not very excited about. Let's look at our text in verses 11 through 21. King Jesus here uses his divine authority to judge Israel. They were waiting for salvation. He brings judgment. Let's start reading in verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, and as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. What in the world is going on here? I remember reading this as a boy and just thinking, he is weird. He's cursing a fig tree. And then I thought, well, I'm kind of like that. When I get mad at the video game I'm playing, I chuck the controller at the TV, thinking that's going to make an impact. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is he just being irrational? Why in the world would you get mad at a tree and curse it? Something else is going on here. Let's keep reading. Verse 15 and following. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Do you know why they killed Jesus? Because Jesus was not coming to Jerusalem to cleanse out the Romans. He was coming to Jerusalem to cleanse them of their sin. And that's not what they wanted. That's not what they bargained for. They wanted a king in their life who was going to make their circumstances better right now. Thank you very much. Our religion is just fine. And yet Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. 
Jesus is not cleansing out the Romans from Jerusalem. He is with his divine authority. King Jesus is cleansing the temple because of sin. The people reject King Jesus' authority. That's why in verse 18 it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. Later in the chapter, and in the following chapter, you see that these leaders try to challenge Jesus' authority over and over. What do you think, teacher, about the, the tax being paid to Caesar? Should we do it or not? They were trying to trap Jesus because they didn't believe he had the authority to do what he was doing, so they wanted to expose him. And yet what happened is, Jesus answered them in such a way, proving that he had all authority, even in teaching, that they said, oh, I think we're done asking questions. Like, we'll go ask someone else something. Jesus gives a parable of, of what the people were like in the parable of the evil tenants, where God sends servant after servant to his people and they reject him, even his own son. They are not submitted to King Jesus because they don't even see that Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, what happens in Mark 11 20 and 21? Let's see what happens to that fig tree. As they passed by it in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. I love Peter's response because I think it would probably be all of our response. Jesus was trying to teach something very spiritual. And they're just excited that, no way, you made that tree die. That's awesome. And yet Jesus is so patient with his disciples, isn't he? He uses it as an occasion to teach them what it was really about. See, Jesus, in cursing the fig tree, was cursing the religion of the Jews, saying that they were spiritually bankrupt. And so he was bringing judgment to the temple. And that the fig tree actually died shows that he did have the authority to bring that judgment. They did not receive their king as the new temple, like he said. And so he cleanses the temple and he kills the tree. The tree, the fig tree, is a visible parable of what Jesus is doing at the temple. So what Jesus is doing in cursing the tree is cursing his people and their religion because it's not about him. It's easy to read this and put yourself in a different place than the people, isn't it? It's easy to read a story like this and say, man, if I were there, I would have seen it. I mean, he calmed the sea, for crying out loud. He's God, all right? I'm going to submit to him. He raised Lazarus just a few days before this. And yet, isn't it interesting, beloved, how often we reject the divine authority of Jesus in our own hearts and lives? So when we celebrate Jesus, do we celebrate him because 
He's going to make all our circumstances better in the way we wanted. Like the Jews were hoping. So that Jesus will serve our little kingdoms of the things that we want to happen. Or are we rejoicing in King Jesus this morning because all authority has been given to him to establish his kingdom in our lives? Or when we sit under King Jesus' word, do we only do so because we want it to make us feel better? Or because we know he has the authority as our king to cleanse our own hearts from sin, just like he did the temple? Do we allow him into our hearts as our king to call sin, sin? Or do we reject him? Do we rest in our own religious efforts like the Pharisees? The Pharisees and the religion surrounding the temple was their hope. That was their righteousness. Or do we submit to King Jesus when he said, look, anything you do on your own is sin. And you're just as spiritually bankrupt as the temple apart from me. I often find in my own life, I want a divine savior who's going to save me, but I don't want a divine king who's going to tell me how to live. We too reject his authority, don't we? And we need to plead for God to give us grace in that. That's that's why I love where this story goes. There are so many times where Jesus could have just given up on the disciples. And yet he patiently teaches them. And we see that in this story as well. Let's see how Jesus responds to Peter's excitement about the fig tree. Let's look at verses 22 through 25. Jesus patiently responds to Peter's amazement at the fig tree. And he teaches this. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and will end it will be yours. Now, isn't that an interesting change in direction in the conversation? Peter's like, whoa, look at that fig tree. And Jesus says, trust in God. What's happening here? Well, Peter's obviously missing the point. He's obviously not understanding the theological reasons of what Jesus is trying to show his disciples But he doesn't walk and say, oh, you don't get it, forget it, just, you know, whatever. He patiently teaches them that the very authority that he had to judge the temple, the very authority that he has to curse the fig tree and it wither, is the very authority of God that serves us, his people, as we trust 
and submit our lives to him. Isn't that remarkable? The very authority that Jesus uses as the divine king, son of God, Jesus is saying here is at work in your life for your good as we submit our lives to him. So Jesus points us to faith in him. He says, trust God. Trust God to remove whatever hinders us from bearing fruit for God. That's what he's teaching here. Isn't that so encouraging? How many areas of your life this morning are places where you feel like you will never get victory? You will never have the comfort of God in this area of your life. There are places in our hearts that feel impossible. And yet Jesus says, have faith in God. I am able to remove whatever is in your way from serving me fully. I can move mountains. Moving a mountain is a metaphor in Jewish literature for doing what was seemingly impossible. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, trust me, Jubilee. That thing, that person, that sin in your heart that you're so struggling with this this morning, I have authority over it. And if you but trust me, And come to me, I can move mountains. So don't allow unbelief to tell you that this is just going to be a part of me the rest of my life. I'm always going to struggle with this sin. That's a blatant rejection of what Jesus is teaching here. His authority, the one that's in control of black holes, can give you victory. And... As we trust Jesus and his divine authority to work in our hearts, we are called to live in submission to his will for us. We are called to live in submission. We see that in verse 25. Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that you, your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So yes, we can trust God to move mountains. And yes, we are called to submit to him as our king. We cannot live in relationships however we want now that we have a king over us. The same divine authority that works so mightily in our hearts is the same divine authority that says just as Jesus uses his authority to forgive us, we are called to go and do likewise with our brothers and sisters. We are called to live a life of humble service and mercy, just like Jesus was as king. And so we must also forgive others. What empowers us to forgive? What empowers us to forgive? It's impossible. To truly forgive someone. If they've wronged you deeply, if they've done something in your life that's caused harm beyond imagination, it is impossible for us to forgive apart from Jesus, apart from his work in our hearts to bring it about. He has to move mountains for that to happen. 
I want to end by looking at a verse in Mark that I think is the most important verse in Mark. And not only does it help us see how we can forgive other people, but it also shows us the most surprising way imaginable that Jesus uses his divine authority. This is God. He's just judged Jerusalem. And yet he willingly goes to the cross. Mark 10.45 says this about our king. It says this about his authority and how he uses it. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What? This is the king. And he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom? Jesus uses his authority not only to serve us, but to show us our need for him. The word there for serve is in Greek is diakoneo, from where we get, or it's connected to the word that we have for deacon. When you think of deacon, what do you think? You think of someone who humbly comes alongside someone and serves them in their need. They're always getting their hands dirty. They're getting their hands messy, walking alongside people. And so when Jesus wants to describe his ministry, the way he uses his authority at this first coming, he says, I came to deacon. Jesus came to be a deacon in that sense. What an amazing picture of our king. He came as one to serve. Fathers, how are you doing with this? How are you using your authority in the home? If I or we came and asked your wife, does Mark 10.45, is that a good reflection of your husband? What would they say? Or if you're in charge of a team at work and you have authority over people and we ask your employees, what's it like to serve under her or him? Tell me what that's like. Would they be able to use a verse like this? Man, she's always just serving us in the way she leads. He's always just serving us in the way he leads. Parents, what would your children say? Would they say that, wow, I respect mom and dad so much and the authority they have, but... They use it to serve me and love me and humble themselves to walk alongside me. Let us pray that God would give us hearts of service like Jesus. Now Jesus doesn't only show his own humility in this verse, but he also shows us our desperate need, doesn't he? None of us like to be served. If I come over and I clean your whole house, it would be hard for you to say, oh, thanks, Toph, and then just move along. You would feel a compelling reason to say, all right, let me, let me take you out to eat or something. We don't like to be served. 
And we especially don't like to be told that we are so sinful that our only hope is someone dying and paying a ransom for our deepest need. That's what was happening in Jerusalem. They did not want a Messiah who would suffer. Peter, the disciples didn't want a suffering Messiah. Remember when, Peter, when Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross, and what did Peter say? Let it never be. We don't want a suffering Messiah. We certainly don't want to follow a suffering Messiah. And we especially don't want a suffering Messiah because it shows us that we need a suffering Messiah who had to pay the ultimate payment for our sin. And so we see that the way that Jesus uses his divine authority shows us we have a deeper need than we could ever imagine and that he is so willing in love to meet that need that he died on the cross, laying aside his own authority. So Jubilee, do we daily testify to those around us of our deep spiritual need for Jesus by acting like only his death for his only his death in ransoming ransoming us will save us or do we act as if we don't really need Jesus for those who recognize the depth of their need for Christ that only his ransom will make me right with God their lives are so different They're lives of humble service and mercy, able to forgive other people. We need to live as if we actually do need a ransom that pays for our sin and not trust in our own religious efforts. In conclusion, this was just the first coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus will be very different. And he will use his divine authority in a very different way. Just read Revelation and you will notice that it's quite different than a little cult taking you into the city. It's a white horse with a sword. In Mark 14, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we must prepare for that day. There will be a time where he no longer comes in with a humble colt. He will come far differently, and he will mete out justice. And all the wrongs of this world will be made right. So let us, while there's time, humbly serve our neighbor. Humbly serve one another. Pointing each other to this divine king who laid it all down on our behalf. There's only so much time before he'll come back. Let us rejoice that as we do that, At the end of Matthew, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Behold, I am with you always. We are not to do this alone. Let's pray.
Father, we are so thankful that King Jesus laid down his authority to serve us. Oh God, help us to rejoice in that hope. Help us to long to see our neighbors see that same hope. And let our lives be so full of humility and service to others that that we're an accurate reflection of who King Jesus is. God, we need you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lou's going to come up and give the benediction.